0: Welcome to Love Your Heart, brought to you by Cleveland Clinic's Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute. These
1: podcasts will help you learn more about your heart, thoracic, and vascular systems, ways to stay healthy, and information about diseases and treatment options. Enjoy. Welcome back. Uh, This is part two of Ask the Heart Doctor About Atrial Fibrillation. I'm Osama Wazni, and with me is uh, Dr. Mandeep Bargava. Uh, So we uh, talked a lot about atrial fibrillation, its causes, its symptoms, what the goals of therapy are. So let's go into some more specifics now and talk about the medications that can be used for maintenance of sinus rhythm, or in other words, treatment of atrial fibrillation.
0: Sure. So, you know, I usually tell patients that uh, those drugs which keep you in normal rhythm, or what we call as rhythm-controlled medications also called as antiarrhythmic drugs uh, can be largely divided into three groups either sodium channel blockers which are like flaconide and propafenone or potassium channel blockers which are like sotalol and dofetilide, or amiodarone which is a potassium channel blocker with some sodium channel blocking activity all these drugs can be used in different stages of atrial fibrillation some work better in paroxysmal atrial fibrillation which is like the earlier stage some work better in persistent atrial fibrillation. And all these drugs have some risks in the range of half percent per year or less, whether they could cause bad life-threatening arrhythmias from the bottom chambers or lung problems. But there are ways to mitigate those risks by taking them with some precautions, with some caution. In fact, some of these drugs like dofetilide and sotalol, we administer only as inpatients at least for the first six doses. But once we find out as to which patients would tolerate them safely then long term most patients would do well with them but would need some surveillance every so often whether every three months or every six months in terms of their blood work ECG, lung function tests and things like that. So Yes, you do need these medications long term unless at some point of time they decide they want to be off the medication and consider an ablation or if the medication is not working for them. But each of these drugs has to be taken with some caution. There is no doubt.
1: So what, what are the what is the long term efficacy of these medications? Do they become less effective over time? You get this question all the time.
0: Yeah, I think that is great and I, I'm not sure I want to pin down the medications and say that they become less effective but it's important to know that atrial fibrillation is a progressive disease and I think the disease just outgrows the medication. So sometimes over exactly, I think that would be a great uh, way to say it because it's a progressive disease and as it outgrows the power of the medication then we either have to use a higher dose or a different medication which is stronger. But in general, I think uh, most medications would have an efficacy in the range of 40 to 70% based on the stage of the disease. But it's important to know that it is not like antibiotics that you take a course of the pills and you're done. You are using the medications to suppress the disease and you have to take them as long as you wish to suppress the disease in most patients unless we identify a reversible factor where it will go away after some time.
1: Are you aware of any natural remedies for it? Uh,
0: <laughs> I don't think there is any uh, substitution for uh, living life the healthy way and not letting it have uh, happen the first uh, time. So
1: that, that's, yeah, but so that's...
0: Uh, I think uh, most of these medications you have to be on for, for uh, long term. Unless uh, an ablation has the potential. So to along cure you. the
1: natural remedies, just to say, I mean, I would say, again, this is all these treatments that we're talking about are based on a foundation of healthy lifestyle and prevention. So natural remedies will include in healthy lifestyle, uh, losing weight if somebody's overweight, uh, exercise and staying fit if they're not so, and also managing sleep apnea. So all of these are. Um, uh, things that or strategies that can decrease the burden of atrial fibrillation. So we now are controlling the AFib using these antiarrhythmic drugs, but we also talked that one of the most important aspects of managing AFib is prevention of stroke. So what are those medications? Uh, They fall under blood thinners, but what are the choices now that we have uh, with blood thinners?
0: So I think that has been one of the most revolutionizing change in the last few years where Uh, Many years ago, we had patients choose between aspirin and warfarin. And warfarin was the only available blood thinner, which was a difficult and cumbersome medication to take because there is no standard dose. You have to get a blood test every so often to find out whether you are on the right dose. It has a lot of interactions with things that we eat and other uh, kind of drugs that we take. And uh, again, we had this thought that patients who are at a lower risk may benefit from aspirin and different dosages of aspirin. So I think what we've learned in the last 10 to 15 years is that aspirin does not seem to have much role. And I'm sh- uh, sure if you have any comments on that, I'm no, happy I to welcome totally that. So, I totally agree. But we just... first learned that the higher dose is not any better than the lower dose, but now it seems that the lower dose also does not seem to offer much. You so so?
1: In, you know, what I've learned over the last 10 to 15 years is that actually aspirin has no role in stroke prevention in patients who have atrial fibrillation. Uh, it may be needed for coronary disease, but in AFib, uh, stroke prevention, it has no role. And uh, the only thing I see from it is actually an increased risk of bleeding uh, without too much protection from stroke.
0: And I think that is what we have also learned from our interventional colleagues, that even it's a preventive uh, role, even in patients, to prevent the role of a primary heart attack has kind of uh, kind of been challenged How about but again the blood thinners? for uh, so yeah so so the other important thing that has happened is that we have now these four very important drugs whether it is apixaban or rivaroxaban and dabigatran and edoxaban which are some newer blood thinners which have revolutionized the management in many ways because one they don't need a blood test to monitor what is the right dose for every patient they have minimal interaction with things that we eat and other drugs so they have kind of a one-size-fits-all approach unless people have an abnormal weight uh, very low or very high or if people have abnormal kidney function because most of them are uh, excreted by the kidneys so again all these drugs are either as good as and as safe as warfarin Or a little better. Would you agree? Yes, I I totally agree. And although we individualize each of these drugs for every patient in some situations, in most situations it is important to know when one should not be used. So just like antiarrhythmic drugs, there are some that you cannot use when somebody has a structural heart problem or some that you cannot use when people have a kidney problem. Same thing with these drugs... Each one of them may have a little caveat that you have to use them differently when people have advanced kidney disease or an advanced age or things like that. But in most situations, I'm sure you would agree that they have a very equivalent role to play.
1: So, I mean, basically the the, the message here is that these new medicines are, I think have a lot of advantages over warfarin. Um, And they're, they're mostly equivalent to each other and depending on you know liver function and most importantly kidney function but i think another important thing to tell viewers here would be
0: when do you think that warfarin is your only choice
1: so there are only two conditions when warfarin is the the only choice i think one is when you have a mechanical valve so when there is a mechanical valve warfarin is the only choice and in those uh, patients, we cannot use any of the newer medications. And the other one is when there is mitral stenosis from rheumatic heart disease. If there's rheumatic heart disease, then none of these anticoagulants are indicated uh, in this, and we have to use warfarin. Um, any other condition, actually, even with the kidney dysfunction and all that, there are dosing uh, adjustments that can be made. So, But in these yeah. two conditions, mechanical valves and mitral stenosis because of rheumatic heart disease, we cannot but use Coumadin. So it has to be warfarin or you know, Coumadin uh, in those patients.
0: Yeah, and, and even the newer ones, they can have those modifications in patients with advanced kidney disease or renal failure. But I think many times in end-stage renal disease or patients in dialysis, maybe it turns out easier to be on warfarin rather than play around with the difficulties with these medications, I think.
1: But it's not a, an absolute, uh, what we call, contraindication to those medications. Now, we're going to shift gears here a little bit, um, <clears throat> and we can answer. Uh, there's a question on, does Eliquis stop atrial fibrillation? So just to put it out there, n- these are blood thinners. Do, do not stop atrial fibrillation. So, and this is gonna, we're going to come back to that theme when we're talking about left atrial appendage closure with Watchman. But let's move on uh, to cardioversion. And the biggest question I get from my patients is, "Well, how many cardioversions can I have?" So uh, there is really no limit to the number of cardioversions that people can have.
0: But at some point of time, we figure out that either it is a futile strategy, or patients tend to get frustrated. But when it is a necessity, there are patients who had 20, 25 cardioversions also. Uh, but uh, a cardioversion is not something that really damages your heart and you can have more than a few as and when is needed because the cardioversion puts you back into rhythm, does not hold you there.
1: So it does not maintain, so it is a very important distinction here is that the cardioversion gets a person back to normal rhythm but it does nothing to maintain sinus rhythm. So to maintain sinus rhythm, it's gonna to have to be either an antiarrhythmic drug, medication or we're going to shift now to ablation. So now, we have the patients on anticoagulants, we have them on an antiarrhythmic drug, they have had a cardioversion, but the AFib overpowers these drugs, and now they're back in atrial fibrillation. When should we consider an ablation? So uh, we talked in the last session about
0: what are the best times or what are the best patients where an ablation should be considered, but again, patients who are not maintaining normal rhythm and feel better in normal rhythm and the drug is not able to hold them in normal rhythm, I think are the most classical patients to have an atrial fibrillation ablation. But now as ablation techniques are getting better, getting safer, getting more effective and we are also learning some very important things that is that an ablation works much better if you do it earlier rather than later. We also learned that it may probably slow down or even prevent the progression of disease from paroxysmal to persistent atrial fibrillation. So I think over the last 20 years I've just seen that our threshold and I'm sure you would agree to offer an ablation to a majority of the patients has only come down. Yes. So again patients who are symptomatic not tolerating medications not doing well with medications or sometimes it is better to be aggressive earlier in patients who have a more aggressive form of the disease like patients who have heart failure or heart muscle dysfunction as a consequence of atrial fibrillation
1: yes now we have decided that we're going to do an ablation what modality should we use there are there's a lot of them now i mean and and people are getting confused should we use radiofrequency should we use cryoablation should we use electroporation, should we entertain a surgical ablation? So how would you, Dr. Bargava, guide our patients to one or the other modality? And on what basis?
0: I was so very sure Dr. Wasni, is going to put me on the spot here <laughs> because it's always a very difficult uh, question as to whether a cryoablation or a radiofrequency ablation is better or one modality is better than the other. I think there is a lot of bias in terms of what an individual physician has to offer but I think there is a lot of common ground between each of these strategies and that is that we are trying to isolate the pulmonary veins from the left atrium and whichever way you can do it best is the best for the patient. I think uh, there is also data to show that the cryoblation and I am sure you may have a few words to share there may work better in the initial phase of the disease, but at least uh, my personal experience has been that in the most advanced forms, and that is what we tend to see most often, where we have a lot of redos from other places and more advanced form of the disease being a referral center. I think uh, in those patients, my bias has always been to use radio frequency energy as far as uh, ablation is concerned so no. b- before we go on yeah
1: so i tend to tell my patients is that i would do whatever the your physician is comfortable with in the you know early cases whether it's cryoablation or radiofrequency ablation because the the goal of treatment is the same is isolation of the pulmonary veins and if your doctor is used to doing it using pulmonary uh, cryoablation then have cryoablation. If your doctor is used to doing it using radiofrequency ablation, then it should be radiofrequency ablation. Now, when the ablation, when the AFib is more advanced, in our experience, it's been that with radiofrequency, we will address it in a more comprehensive fashion. Although more recent studies now have shown that cryoablation may be also reasonable for those with more advanced atrial fibrillation. Now, there's also a lot of talk about Electroporation. Could you tell us what what is different about electroporation, and why are people so excited about it?
0: I think uh, a lot of it is still evo- is still evolving, and I don't think we have all the final answers on that. But I think it is just at this point of time important to understand that it is a technique where we are using a different form of energy for shorter periods of time, and uh, The hope is that it will deliver energy in a safer, focal manner, and probably with more long-lasting benefits too. But uh, I don't think it is available as prime time. Uh, Maybe you have some other... uh, So my comment on
1: this is that this is still in development, and it's still really in the research phase and clinical trials, so we don't have the final answer with respect to electroporation. I would like to end this section right now here uh, in talking about a little bit about the convergent uh, procedure because we've had some experience with it and also it was recently highlighted in some important studies uh, in the uh, medical congresses. So convergent procedure basically is a hybrid approach where the surgeon would go behind the heart and ablate the back wall of the left atrium. And then the electrophysiologist will, will ablate from inside the atrium. And using such a strategy was better than just ablating around the veins uh, endocardially. Now, here at the Cleveland Clinic, we ablate also from the inside. We ablate the, the, the back wall. Uh, so to me, the, the convergent uh, procedure showed that it is important to ablate the back wall, but it's also important to ablate it in a safe way. And one way, one safe way to do that is to get the help of a surgeon to do that. But also at the clinic, we add one more thing to that is in that we also clip the appendage. We put a clip over the appendage and we close it so that the risk of stroke in the future decreases without the need for taking long-term anticoagulation. At the clinic now, we are reserving this convergent. We call it the convergent plus procedure for patients who failed, previous ablations, and for patients with advanced atrial fibrillation uh, when they have a very enlarged uh, left atrium. Now, I did comment now here on the clip to close the appendage. Now, we're going to shift uh, the discussion towards the watchman, because we have a lot of questions from our patients regarding the watchman. I'm going to start just by stating two facts, and then we will uh, switch gear to Dr. Barger. I just want to comment here quickly that the watchman does not does not decrease the burden of atrial fibrillation so this is very important because we always get asked this will will I feel better when I get a watchman device you may feel better because you're not you don't have to take a blood thinner but not because the atrial fibrillation burden is less another thing the the watchman is basically a device to close the left atrial appendage so now the question to Dr Barger to clarify Why would we want to close the left atrial appendage? So as we talked initially, there are two important goals of managing
0: atrial fibrillation. One is to reduce the risk of stroke, and one is to improve quality of life and heart failure symptoms. So whether it is blood thinners, whether it is removing the appendage surgically, or whether it is the Watchman device, the primary goal of each of these treatment strategies is to reduce the risk of stroke yes. because we have learned that atrial fibrillation predisposes to the risk of formation of clots we have also learned that most of these clots form in the left atrial appendage so if you can remove the appendage or isolate it from the left of uh, from the rest of the left atrium or the left upper chamber by that you may be able to reduce the risk of stroke but none of these strategies helps in treating the atrial fibrillation per se or the symptoms of palpitations or the symptoms of heart failure. For that one needs either a cardioversion to put them in normal rhythm or drugs to keep them in normal rhythm or an ablation to keep them in normal rhythm. So these are two parallel strategies like the two parallel tracks of a railway line where both are equally important at the same time both things are trying to focus on two different goals but both are important in every patient simultaneously and cannot be substitutive of each other.
1: So, why, do we, why would we want to consider a Watchman device?
0: For the Watchman device uh, particularly, I think uh, the important thing to understand is that by blood thinners, we are reducing the risk of stroke, but that protection comes at a price and that is the price of bleeding. And that risk of bleeding can be usually low in most patients, but in some patients the risk of bleeding may be high enough that whatever protection the blood thinners offer in terms of protecting against the risk of stroke is offset by the risk of bleeding. And at this time we have very good data to show that you can offer the same protection of the risk of stroke by offsetting that risk of bleeding by putting in a watchman device. But I think as Dr. Wasni alluded to earlier, we are now trying to get to the next level where we are trying to see that for patients who are not at an increased risk of bleeding but have a risk of stroke, can the watchman try to help them also long term by trying to achieve a situation where they can be off the blood thinners even if they don't have a higher risk of bleeding? So, so you are the PI on that study that you talked about, the option trial the last time, and I know that you're aware of a lot of other trials coming on regardless of simultaneous use with an ablation. Would you like to allude on that, uh, Dr. Bhargava? Yeah.
1: So th- the answer basically that Dr. Bargavit just told us answers the questions we had um, that were uh, submitted to us. So if, if, if uh, the risk of stroke is moderate to high, and it is necessary to take a blood thinner, but you have a bleeding problem, and this is what the questions are, then a watchman is very reasonable. So that is the answer to that. So somebody who has bleeding here due to cancer, and another patient who had a GI bleed, yes, a watchman is is reasonable to prevent stroke and avoid long-term anticoagulation. Now, we are moving the therapy forward, in that, in those patients who get an ablation and they think that they're, you know, I got an ablation. Why should I stay on a blood thinner? We address this, and one way to address this is uh, to be enrolled in our study called the Option Trial, where we will randomize patients to continue taking anticoagulants versus closing the appendage with the Watchman. The results of the study will not be available until another uh, three to five years, uh, probably. But it is possible that one day we will do the ablation and close the appendage at the same time based on evidence. Now, there's a question here, and the last one here is, can we do the watchman and ablation together? And the answer is yes. Uh, Actually, we are one of the very few sites in the United States that offer these two uh, procedures together. But for now, we do it for patients who cannot be on oral anticoagulation for a long period of time because of recurrent bleeding issues or concern for recurrent bleeding issues. So what we do is we do the ablation, we implant the watchman, we will continue the anticoagulants for another three months, and then stop the anticoagulants. and we've had actually very good outcomes uh, so far with that. Um, one last thing I want to mention is that the afib does not uh, the watchman does not stop afib because this is a recurring question. It does not stop if It does two things, actually. It prevents stroke, and it helps us avoid long-term oral anticoagulation. And I think we will stop this uh, section right now. We will continue with you in part three uh, at some other time. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash loveyourheartpodcast.